Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome back to God's Own Scale podcast episode 7. Yes, it's been a while, but we are back bigger and better than ever. Well, maybe not, but we are back for your 6 mil aural delectation. Before I go on, I'd like to thank each and every one of you for the comments uh, that I've received um, over the last few months asking if I would be back. Um, To be honest, there have been times where I doubted I would be back, but I always hoped I would be, and here we are. I've always enjoyed putting these shows together and speaking with my guests, and I know that the podcast has found a small niche of listeners uh, with a love for all things six. Since I last released an episode, the world has become a very different place. We should be looking forward to the Joy of Six show in around a month's time, but real-world events have had an immeasurable effect upon not only our hobby, but our real-world lives in ways I don't think any of us could have anticipated six months ago. All I'll say is that I hope this podcast finds you safe and well, and that this is a podcast of positivity, so hopefully it will continue to bring positivity to you wherever you are. An extra special apology to today's guest, Robert Fellows. He very kindly gave up his time to speak to me back at the end of November 2019, and we had a great chat, and you'll hear that coming up next. It really was bad form on my part not to get the episode up and out sooner, but better late than never. Uh, apologies, Robert. And hopefully we'll, we will be able to speak again uh, in the near future. Robert is the owner, operator of 2D6 Wargaming. You can find him on Facebook and at 2d6wargaming.com, where you can see his beautiful creations covering World War II, the Dark Ages, Feudal Japan and Scenics, with lots more on the way. So go and take a look. Okay, enough of my preamble. Let's talk about six. Wouldn't be the first time I've had to edit her out of the podcast. Uh, right, mate. If you if you're ready to rock, we'll uh, we'll get going. Uh, I'm you're ready. ready. Excellent. Well, um, welcome to episode seven of God's Own Scale. I know that this uh, is coming hot on the tail of episode six, uh, but here we are with episode seven, and I have an extra special guest. I'm going to tell you why it's an extra special guest in a minute. But first of all, hello to Robert. Hi, Robert. Hi, Sean. How are you doing? I'm all right, mate. Thanks for joining me. Um, I hope you don't mind me saying you're an extra special guest, but I'm going to explain to the listeners why that is the case shortly. Uh, But for the benefit of the listeners who might not know who you are and what you are, can you just uh, tell us uh, who you are and what you are? Um. I'm Rob. I am uh, Chief Sweeper Upper and all the rest of it at um, 2D6 Wargaming, and I'm I'm mostly made of water. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Love it. (laughs) So are you prone to sort of uh, melt or something? uh, No, just just most people. I mean, what you are seems a little bit, I don't know, I don't know if I could answer that. 
I'm probably just a nutter, to be honest. Well, that, that's more what I was aiming for rather than sort of the metaphysical, philosophical angle. But I do like that angle that you, you're mostly water, 80, 85% water, something like that, I think we are. Crikey, that's quite a lot. It is quite a lot, isn't it, when you consider. Um, and we, you consider the fact that we play with 6mm uh, metal men. Uh, and there we are, eighty-five percent water. It's it's mind blowing. But uh, thanks for joining us, mate. On uh, th to, this interview has been some time in the coming together, hasn't it? It has. It's been a long, a long path. It a is. long and crooked path. <laughs> Quite bumpy. It's required some detective work on your part. Um, it has. You, you tracked me down to my. Um, my I had to force you to make the interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, the desire was there. The desire was there, but uh, I was in hiding. I was in hiding for a short time, but you found me. So that was good. Um, it, it could be turned into a movie, I think. Some sort of epic action movie starring Liam Neeson, I suggest. Oh, who's he going to play? You or me? No, he'll play you. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. You track me down. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you, you've got a certain set of skills that uh, managed to find me in the wilderness. <laughs> but the wilderness of the internet. The wilderness of the internet and elsewhere. The darkest, darkest, deepest structure. No one's got a clue what you're talking about. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <clears throat> this is podcast gold, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, um... This is God's Own Scale podcast episode 7. We are here to talk about God's Own Scale, i.e., well, in the main 6 mil. I appreciate that I'm excluding a, a fair portion of the wargaming audience by saying this is purely 6 mil, and I do have to constantly reiterate the fact that the name of the podcast is somewhat tongue-in-cheek. I'm not suggesting 6 mil is the only scale anybody should ever play in. You might say different, Rob, I don't know, but uh, it's it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek from something that Peter Berry said many years ago. So don't, I don't, all the hate mail I've been receiving over the, over the last uh, few months, as in one email, um, uh, it, it's purely tongue-in-cheek. I aren't suggesting that six mil is the only scale, just that it's God's own scale. If God was to be a war gamer. So uh, this 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 podcast has been some time in the making, and I introduced you as an extra special guest, and I'm going to tell the listeners why that is, because uh, in the early stages of planning this podcast, as in the whole entity, not just this episode, um, I spoke to Mick at Leaven Miniatures, and Les, um, and I'm now struggling to remember the name of his Hammond, Les Hammond. There we go, Les Hammond. Uh, and I was I was actually speaking to them about perhaps getting them onto the podcast, and they said they declined or, or, or showed some reluctance to join me. Um, but they said they know a man who can talk the hind legs off a donkey about six more. <laughs> and you were that man, Robert. <laughs> so uh, your your legend has preceded you. And, of course, I've, I've been aware of you anyway through my research into 6 mil uh, over the last uh, few months and a uh, year or so with 2D6 Wargaming and uh, your your Facebook page and your YouTube channel. So just give us, uh, before we go into 2D6 Wargaming, let's just have a bit of a backstory to yourself, Rob, if, if you don't mind. Just 
how you got into gaming and then how you sort of got into six mil um i i think i was quite a very young war gamer in that um it all started with those those uh, figures they are they they're 20 mil i can't remember if they're 170 second or 176 i think i think it's effectively they're both um and the local model shop and my dad got me into models and and i'm of i think i don't know whether this is an age thing but i'm i'm 36 i know there's guys older than me but i don't think there's that many guys younger than me essentially our granddads fought world war Two, and therefore our their their sons were interested in world war Two. and then when you grew up you, your dad talked to you about world war Two, and i think that's where it all started and and that's where my my history interest is is mostly focused as well um but there was these these boxes of of commandos and um panzer grenadiers and, and what have you in the model shop and they were i think they're about five quid four or five quid and that's basically what i used to get for a week's pocket money and i could buy a box every week um and i, I can't remember how many figures there was, there was a there was a fair old few um you know and i think it all started from there and then someone introduced me to wargaming and uh, it was one of my friends <coughs> excuse me um but he um the, the rules for it used to change because they were like a verbal set of rules that he claimed to have learned from his father uh, who didn't live with him who and it basically it was all a lie <laughs> and he used to change the rules to suit himself that's but that's that's basically how I started that is um, and then I was a, a, an older uh, friend uh, friend of the family sort of thing introduced me to wargaming proper and I ended up going down the Games Workshop route, but it was at a time when they were they just stopped selling Road Trader and they were bringing out the Epic line. And I, I went in to essentially get some like 28 mil figures, you know, and a, and a box set and what have you. But they stopped doing it, and I ended up coming out with um, Titan Legions, which is Warhammer 40,000 Epic. So essentially, that was my first boxed game. Which was six mil. I'm not sure if it was six mil. Was it, it six mil? Was it, it no, no. It, uh, I think nominally six mil. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Right. So that's that's where it all started, and then on and off over the years, it sort of dipped in and out, and then about three or four years ago, um, I, I'd wanted to do six mil. I'd seen six mil at a show. It was a Cold War thing. And I thought it looked fantastic, and I was I was a massive twenty mil kind of person with the odd twenty eight mil bit by then. And I saw the six mil, and I was like, I was like, that looks amazing, you know. And I was with uh, with a friend who did war game, and I was like, like, let's get some, let's get an army each. And he was like, ah, oh, no, nah, it's, it's a bit small, isn't it? And I was like, yeah, that's why it's so great. It, it looks amazing. And uh, he was like, no, no, no. And it was like a lack of um, peer. Uh, I don't know what you call it. You know, a, a lack of community that I couldn't, I couldn't get into it because there was no one to play it with. So, you know, and then about about f I, can't, I don't know four or five years ago, I was like, I was like, you know what, I'm going to get back into wargaming again, and uh, and I'm going to get some some of that real small stuff. And uh, I, I got myself a 
I, I wanted to do something really weird like I'd never done before as well. So I ended up getting some samurai from uh, from Bacchus. So it's all Bacchus's fault, basically. All this stuff that happened recently is all—it's all Peter. <laughs> I think he'll just listen to the odd episodes. So I'm sure he'll have a little smile on his face as he hears that. <laughs> but uh, he—he's he, been known, hasn't he? I think to uh, corrupt young innocent people who've never contemplated six mil before. And then, after having had a conversation with him for about 15 minutes, the, the, a tr they go into a trance and suddenly walk away with about 500 figures for 10 quid. Yes. Good, and they should do. So did you paint those samurai up? Oh, yeah, I did, yeah. Uh, not only did I paint them, I wrote a set of rules for them. And I was, I was actually originally writing them for backers ah. for the Polymos system. And then I um, wrote them for myself. Uh, is that featured on your YouTube channel? Am I having a, a seen them? Sure, must be. Yeah, it must I'm be. Sure yeah, on yeah, definitely. And they're they're available on Wargames Vault. I put, a, I actually put an advert in there for backers. I let him have a whole page just to advertise figures and stuff. This was before I made my own figures, but it but it's still in there, and I didn't charge him anything for it. I just did it to promote. Um, the scale and the hobby. So uh, the first purchase, having experimented with the um, epic 40k epic, the first foray into historical was Samurai, was it? In six mil, yeah. And I imagine that was a challenge to get them painted, was it? Um, no, no, I don't think it was. Um, ah. It was a little bit of a challenge in that there was a lack of material. And, and that is what really started... That's why I started my YouTube channel. And I, I purposefully... I mean, I basically, I opened my mouth on Facebook back when there was only one Facebook group for 6mil. And it's now the biggest. Yeah. In that um, I, I said, you know, why isn't anyone shouting from the rooftops about this? You know, why aren't people... Do it, you know, because I was new to six mil, and I was like online going six mil wargaming, six mil wargaming figures, you know, and and, and looking for the stuff, yeah. and there was just like it was really hard to find because no one was promoting it, and and if you want to do yeah. twenty eight mil or twenty mil or, or a certain rule set, you just type it in and like you know, you know, a thousand links come up, and I was like, yeah. oh no no no, this has got to change, and. And I said, you know, why don't someone do this? And then I thought, well, why don't I do it? Yeah. Um, so I, I just started doing it. And I, I purposefully kept the production value low because what I was really hoping was that someone else was going to do it better than me <laughs> and and do it more. <laughs> okay. and, and I'd just kind of like yeah. entice people to, oh, I can do better than that. And then they'd be doing it and no one yeah. really did. <laughs> That's a bit like me with this podcast. I thought, I'll, I'll get it done, and then, because I don't know what I'm doing, hope somebody else will come along and say, "What? A, there's a great market out there for a six-mile podcast, but we can put yeah, professional... Yeah, and, uh, and we could do it easier and better it. than that. And then, and then just, just take charge, and then you can just sit back, and then you can be entertained instead, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. So that's an interesting angle, then, because you, you're dead right, and... Joking aside, it's part of the reason as to why this podcast started was because there's very little coverage of 6mil within the podcast community. There's hundreds of podcasts out there, but very little discussion about 6mil. So you, you notice that gap there 
and you were like an echo chamber, I guess, that you were shouting from the rooftops, but getting nothing mm. much back. And I'd, I'd, I'd like, I'd buy a pack of figures. I'd buy, I'd buy uh, you know, some tanks or whatever I'd buy, and then I'd, I'd just do like a, a little review on it. Uh, I've probably done a review on like most of the uh, six mil manufacturers there is. None of them sent me anything for free. <laughs> so it. So you've corrected that. You've corrected that, Rob. And we'll come. Yeah, come it's like why don't you? Why don't you send stuff to people who are gonna like promote you? Like why wouldn't you do that? You know, yes. send them some stuff. Help them out. Give them some material to work with. I'm no businessman, but that seems like a really it's good idea. It's a fantastic idea. idea. I mean, it, yeah. it costs money, you know. I mean, you send the figures, so you, you get nothing for your figures. You, you send the postage. No. And I don't regret sending what I've sent to you at all, you know, or anyone yeah. else that I've sent stuff to. Um, you know, I don't regret it at all. I think it's a great idea. I think more more people should do it. So the Samurai, then, um, was the beginning for you. And... Uh, I was sort of tongue-in-cheek when I was saying they must have been quite difficult to paint because you will have seen and heard people say you can't possibly paint anything so small. Um, but it sounds like you, other than the source material... The source material wasn't easy for the samurai. No, no. It's 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 probably a more niche period. It, yeah, it's it? a very niche period. Um, but once you've got that and you knew... What colours? I, I found it very frustrating. Uh, the first sort of like twenty minutes, half an hour of ever painting my first six mil, and not from when I was a kid and I was painting the forty k stuff because that just I couldn't paint then at all, so it was impossible yeah. task. But if you can paint twenty mil to any kind of standard, you can paint six mil to a good standard. That's what I say. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I found the first like twenty minutes real frustrating. Because I was trying to paint them like they were like twenty mil, yeah. And I thought, well, uh, you know, I just I, I stopped fighting myself. I gave in a little bit, and then um, I just let it come, and then it was all right. It was fine. And after about about twenty minutes, I painted four figures, and I thought, that's it. That's all you got to do. It's, you know, I'm, I'm trying too hard. That's the biggest thing. Is I'm trying too hard. It's easy. And I think I think that's the first. Once you're past that hurdle, once you've made that realization in your own brain that you're not painting every lapel and every button and paint the paint the unit, not the figure, which has been Peter's mantra for so long. Once you get past that, and you realize that at arm's length, those four figures that you painted in twenty minutes look fantastic. Okay, you might not want to put them under a magnifying glass, but nobody wants to put. A six mil figure under magnifying glass that's not what they're there for is it they're there to look good as a unit on the table it is ground scale that looks good on nice terrain that looks good so it's it's a complete change in mindset i think once you've made that mindset change as you've just described that that is the magic moment i think yeah once you realize you can actually do it yeah um, me personally what i do is is I just I, I undercoat light colours like white um, and I just block paint the actual colours. That's it. I just block paint it. I don't leave a black you know like a border between colours or anything like yeah. that. I just paint the trousers. The you know I mean most uniforms are, are essentially start with one colour. So I just base coat them in entire one colour. Paint the faces yeah. and the hands and then I just paint you know rifle 
helmet, whatever, and then just just a, a brown wash. And then I yeah. might go in, depending on what it is, if it's World War Two, I might just go in and paint the helmet again. But if it's Napoleonics, I'd go in and paint all the bright colours again. And that just yeah. really, um, as people say, I don't know why they say this, but they say it makes it pop. My figures don't <laughs> pop, right? <laughs> bubbles bubbles <laughs> pop. My figures look bubbles great. Pop, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that could be the tagline for this episode, mate, yeah. <laughs> figures don't pop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. I've I've been painting some uh, six mil Austrian Napoleonics and followed exactly the same method that you've just done. And all I'll do at the end after the brown put, wash, put your put your whites back on and your oranges and your baby exactly. blues and stuff yeah. like that. And it, and it just real, exactly. yeah, they they look splendid. Then they really do. Yeah, I'll say the pop. But I, I bow to your <laughs> your great analogy. I just think it's such a weird <laughs> phrase is that they pop. It is. It is a weird. It is a weird phrase, but it seems to have um, sunk into the uh, wargaming dictionary. Doesn't yeah, it? So. Uh, we use it all the time. But there you go. So after the um, the samurai, then uh, what was the next step then for you as a historical six mil gamer? Um, I mean, I did that. I published that. I just kept going with the YouTube channel, really not knowing what I was doing, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Um, and I just went to a few shows and stuff like that. I mostly went to Joy Six um, because I I don't I essentially when I got back into wargaming, I wanted to do twenty eight and six mil, and I just I bought some twenty eight, I painted them, and I've never used them, and I, I yeah. just don't. I've got I've got like four or five armies in 28. We call them armies, don't you? They're like platoons. <laughs> 12 men carrying a flag. As yeah, and I just don't use them. I don't I don't have any terrain for them, and I just don't use them. I just don't... It's all 6 mil. Not floating your boat. Uh, I mean, it, it can do. Another thing with me is I don't like... I don't like... I don't like game games. I like war games. Games. Okay. Is that yeah. I like to be able to recreate historical things. If you've got weapons with such short ranges that you can't have overlapping fields of fire, so if your you know your machine gun and your mortar have got like ranges that can't be deployed properly and overlap properly, it just it's a game. It's not it's not a war game. It's a, it's a game game, which is okay. You know, some people like that. It's each their own, isn't it? And famously, I won't name the company, but there was a set of rules where a well-known bridge assault uh, box set was released where the rifle range wouldn't go from one end of the bridge to the other. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, but some people do like those games, and I must admit, yes. I'm not your... I'm not the typical wargamer that likes the typical wargaming things, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, there's nothing to be afraid of with that, I think, Rob. It's, uh, I always say wargaming is a broad church, and there's room for all of us. And it would be pretty boring, wouldn't it, if we all played, and I'll just pluck a name out of thin air completely off the top of my head, if we all played bolt action. <laughs> um, if we all played bolt action, it'd be a bit boring, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. If if we all play twenty eight mil bolt action and didn't consider twenty mil or fifteen mil or ten or six or two or 
played Chain of Command or Blitzkrieg Commander or whatever set of rules floats your boat because unlike most other hobbies, if you play chess, there's one set of rules for chess, isn't there? If you play golf, there's pretty much one set of rules for golf. Wargaming, just about every wargamer that you'll meet will have their own... There's pattern. more wargaming rules than there is wargamers. I, I There's totally more wargaming that. rules than there ever has been wargamers. Living, past, present... <laughs> totally wargames vault and just look for wargames <laughs> rules. There there's must be like 10,000 sets or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's just commercially available. Well, that's just the ones that are available on Wargames. Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's ones that are even there's, there's, there's just so yeah. many. There's so, so many. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and that brings with it the variety, I think, which makes the hobby interesting. But it does create that slight perverse behavior, I guess, in that uh, you might be absolutely an avid fan of rule set A. But you can't find anybody else who wants to play. And if you do find somebody else who plays it, they play it slightly different to you, because they interpret the rules differently, or they've got house rules. Everyone's got house rules. They're playing a different. Scale. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's got house. No, rules. no set of rules survives contact with the customer. <laughs> yeah, that's a good phrase. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, you're not the typical gamer. Um, you went for six month samurai for a start, which. It's pretty out there, isn't it? Was Samurai something that you were interested in for a long time? Yeah, I've I've had a bit of an interest in um, in martial arts and stuff like that, and but also um, there was a there was a computer game out called Total War, and the first yes. one they did for that was was Feudal Japan, and I think that's where I really got interested in that that uh, particular period of history. There, there's a lot more people that I've spoken to since that that know. I don't know tons about it. I know enough about it. There's so much to know about it, and it's real finicky. And some of these people can be a bit. Do you know, like the the Napoleonic crowd are sometimes accused of being a little bit elitist. Well, they're probably mm. nothing compared to the uh, the, the feudal <laughs> Japanese guys. They they really are. Um, and it, and even that's split in two, isn't it? Really, you've got this sort of earlier medieval um, Japan. Um, and then the sort of Sengoku, Sengoku period, slightly later, sort of is it sixteenth, seventeenth century? So that even that's split into. I know Peter does two separate ranges, almost of uh, Japanese, doesn't he? So, yeah, it's it's all really um, shrouded in mystery and myth as well, because um, yeah. when they first start making contact with the Americans, they saw the American military as, as quite uh, formidable and obviously a bit mysterious to them. Mm. And then what they did was they reviewed their own history and said, okay, um, you know, we need to make ourselves look better. So this battle here, you know, instead of being 3,000 people versus 2,000 people, we'll just put an extra zero on the end of each. Right. You know, and, they, and stuff like that. And, um, yeah. and they really um, reinvented their own history. So, Puts in yeah, on. you've you've really got to take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, is it the Tom Cruise effect? Um, I don't know what that is. <laughs> Last Samurai. <laughs> um, yeah, that film's quite quite yeah. out of whack. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's good fun, but uh, I'm not quite sure what was happening in it to be honest. But there you go. So, uh, so Samurai's been a, a an abiding interest. Um, 
I take it World War Two has also been uh, an abiding history uh, interest of yours uh, due to the setting up of 2D6. But when did you first start gaming World War Two and Six Mil? Um, when did I first start doing that? Uh, probably after after the Samurai, and I was like, right, okay, now I'll do World War Two and. I started writing a set of rules for that, and that was like three years ago, and they're still they're still not out. So, um, but I'm I'm trying to focus on them this this winter, and I'm I'm really going to try and push out um, a rule book for it. It's a big period, isn't it? It's it's periods within periods. It's a massive period. If you do, if you take something from the ancient world, um, it's really simple, and there's like five units aside. Uh, you know, and it's mm. pretty much done. Uh, and it's like I'm looking at Anglo-Saxons at the minute. Um, you know, and they don't know stuff. They just don't know. You know, yeah. it's, it's not. It's not like oh, it could have been this, could have been that. They just don't know. <laughs> you yeah. know, so it's um, it's quite easy to uh, not fudge, but there's no information to to contradict or consider. It's educated guesswork, isn't it? It's, it's yeah, but it's all kind of like straightforward. Whereas the more recent histories, a lot more harder to write about, and you need so many more units. You know, this, yeah. I, I think there's about, as a, as a guess, as an absolute guess, I think I need to make about a thousand um, vehicles for World War Two to have a complete range. Oh my goodness! It's a thousand objects. Right. Okay. Yeah. You know, I see because ancients. You need like you need like six infantry strips. <laughs> yeah, well, essentially, ancients for two thousand years from Samaria up until I don't know the fall of Rome is a man with a spear and a shield, isn't it? Spear and shield. It's classic. But they're wearing different clothes, aren't they? But yeah, maybe uh, they're wearing. They might they might operate in slightly different ways, but it's still a man with a spear and a shield. Yeah, World War Two from nineteen thirty nine through to nineteen forty five was a different animal through each year, wasn't it? And each front. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I, I, it's, I it's still you know. it's still like a, a spear, but it goes bang. <laughs> it is, and and, <laughs> and some there's, make no, there's no shield, and some make bigger bangs, don't they? Oh yeah, yeah, and some some are massive. Yeah, so I think I feel the pain, and I I, I would never. Uh, uh, well, a thousand items must be. That, that's got to be wish list material, isn't it? I've got a wish list. <laughs> it's on there. I think that'll be completed. Uh, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, if if you complete that, then absolutely hats off to you because that that is incredible. I remember I'm a little bit older than you, uh, Rob, but I remember back in the day, the first my first contact with the War Games magazine was military modeling uh in the early uh, i've seen that magazine yeah you might have, your granddad might have told you about it i guess but, <laughs> um this uh, the heroics and ross had a a page a, a whole page advert um with their world war Two catalog and there was just column after column of bizarre acronyms and names of vehicles and tanks and uh, a, a, a list with a price yeah yeah, maybe how many you got in a pack? Yeah, so it, back then it might have been three Panzer fours for seventy five pence or something like that. But 
the very through all the through the Panzer one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, all the all the weird and wonderful material uh, machines that they, they built, the Russians, the the Americans. It was just a long, long list, and I I don't know how many were on that page, but it can't have been far off a thousand. Uh, I'm sure, but if if that's your ambition with the 2d6 wargaming i'll take my hats off to you and uh, we will chat again <laughs> uh, i don't know how far down that list you are of a thousand items but about um about 20 20 okay <laughs> well let's, let's check in at regular intervals as you uh, as you make your way to that golden thousand because i'm sure once you've made a thousand you'll find probably another couple of hundred or more that you'll want to make because there will be variants on variants and either that or i'll be barking mad well, that's that's all right. That's what the song's about. We're all barking mad. We're grown men playing with little toy soldiers, so it doesn't get much more mad than that, does it? Not really. No. And and World War Two is is probably the period that I know least about. I know I can really? recognise. Yeah, I can recognise a panther and a tiger and a Sherman. I know what they look like, but outside of that, I'm struggling. Um, I've got. I've, I know about the general sort of course of the war, I guess, from uh, the general histories that you read. But it's never been a period that I've dived into uh, very much. But I, I be, this year was my year of getting to know World War Two. Right. Um, so I know a bit more about it this, now than I did at the start of the year. But I am intrigued by. I've never done micro gaming or six mil world war two and it's something i want to get into i i strongly suggest you start in the middle because it's the, it is the most fun period it's the it's the more evenly balanced you don't have the super heavy tanks um it's, it's just more interesting so you know the, uh, north africa yeah. In in nineteen forty two ish, or like the Eastern Front in nineteen forty two again, you know, um, is is probably it's probably the most fun I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's not that I haven't played World War Two games. I've played quite a lot of World War Two games, but it's generally been with other people's stuff. I've got a little bit in in other scales. Um, but it, yeah, it's. I've, you know, there's there's only so much time, isn't there? So much money and so much energy you have to put into into the, into the hobby. And uh, American Civil War has always been my primary period, and World War One is a sort of I would say my secondary period. And then there's lots of other periods around that. But World War Two has always been towards the bottom of my areas of interest prior to this year, really. So um, six mil World War Two is definitely something I want to try. I picked up some scenario books and i can't remember what they're called now but i bought them from a guy at the chase war games club um and i can't remember his name but his products are available on war games Vault as well um he's done a campaign pack and then a scenario a book it is actually a campaign book for russia uh and a scenario book for russia um, I'll find it. I'll put it into the links to link to it because that that really did spike my interest. It's designed around spearhead, or or that that sort of divisional scale of rules. But so you've written your own rules, then, Rob, um, which are still in development, and you're hoping to finish this winter. Just tell us a bit about them and their development. 
Um, they're they're called battalion. That's that's essentially what they are. Um, and they're called that because you actually you have a battalion. So, and I don't mean it's battalion level wargaming because some people will say it's company level wargaming. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's and that's like um, in larger scales they'll call it company level wargaming, yeah. but it's actually a platoon of, of men and a couple of tanks. I mean, it's actual battalion level wargaming, true battalion. Yeah. So it's it's essentially anywhere between two to four companies um, aside, maybe a couple of little support platoons and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, now I say I started writing this about three years ago one of the reasons it's behind a little is the orders of battle that I wanted to include in it and they've been they've, they're behind and then I wanted to change those from lists into uh, pictorial formats Okay. Uh, which is proven difficult because trying to find an illustrator that can handle NATO symbols and stuff and understand military organizations quite difficult yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> to say the least um uh, but but mostly the the thing about it that sets it aside from other war games is that you have realistic uh, movements comparative to each other and it's more more it's not it's not true to the ground state ground scale but it's um the ballistics the ballistics and the movement are more realistic yeah, to the ground scale than other war games, so they're they're quite long, they're quite large. Yeah, um, which is one of my pet peeves about war games is you know I oh I can only shoot my rifle down the street. Yeah, you know. twelve inches. Yeah, yeah. Whereas you, you know a rifle can shoot like a mile and a half. I mean you can't hit something at a mile and a half. No. Yeah, unless you're some crap sniper. <laughs> yeah. Tom Barry. Yeah, and they're they're few and far between, but you know you can probably shoot 100 meters or 200 meters or 300 meters, yeah, you know, with some kind of like re- reasonable expectation. Um, so essentially that's what they are, and um, uh, they're just taking bloody forever to write. <laughs> I, I, f- I find with a set of rules is that you have to you write it once and you're like, oh yeah, this is a really good rule set, and then you have to go you have to rewrite every single section again and you'll change it and that's your rules yes and uh, have these been who, who's play tested these is it just yourself or have you sent them out for play testing no i've sent them out for play testing i've played them at local clubs i've played them with my circle of, of war gamers and stuff like that um you know it's, it's really hard to find play testers as well yeah if you are writing your own rules and stuff because there's so many sets of rules it's like, oh god, someone else is, you know, wants me to play these rules now. Yeah. The, um, that's a really good point actually, because I'm sure that it's difficult handing your baby over to somebody else to play with. And it, then... it's quite often a very raw product, and you can see all the uh, the promise in it. Yeah, and they can't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they they don't understand why there's no drawings. They never understand why there's no drawings. Right. Okay. And it's like I can't make. I can't. I don't want to pay for illustrations and then change the method that I use and then pay for another illustration. Yeah. So quite often there's no drawings, which um, is a problem for 
for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it, I I don't write rules. I've, I've been involved in playtesting for a long time, but I don't write them. Um, and getting whatever is in your head, whatever your vision for what the objectives of this game are, and, and projecting that out through the written word, solely through the written word and through no diagrams or photos, I imagine it's tricky because people, you only have to look at social media. You can write something on social media with the intent of uh, going down one direction, but somebody else reads it and think you're going down a completely different <laughs> yeah. path. They completely mm. misinterpret. And yet, because you're so close to it, you say, oh, it's obvious. Just read what I've written. It's obvious, but yeah, and another a fresh pair of eyes comes and looks at it and says, "Well, actually, I've, I've no idea what you're talking about, or I think what you've written means this and th this." Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, it's a, an alternative uh, in, interpretation. Yeah. Um. One of the one of the um. Yeah, one of the one of the hardest things about writing rules is you you go through the methods and stuff. And you're quite familiar with them, and then you have to remember to write them down to someone who's never done it before. Yeah. And that that's quite tricky. And whenever you find things in rules that don't make any sense, that's that's usually that step that they've forgotten. Yes. But another one is um, if you do things out of sequence in a rule set, things will come unwound very quickly. Yeah. So if you have a rule set that often doesn't make sense. The first thing I would ever check is that you're doing it in the right sequence. Right. Yeah. Follow so, follow the sequences written by the author. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it's quite easy to to jump around and stuff. Yes. And then and then it all, all comes unwound. The best analogy I ever heard, and as I say, I don't write rules, but I'm, I have been involved in playtesting, is that um, we all know how to make a cup of tea, but if I was to write down my instructions of how to make a cup of tea and you'd never made one before, it would probably there'd probably be twenty odd steps in there. Mm. Um and somebody else might write their own description of how to make a cup of tea and they, they might have fifteen steps but in a slightly different order to what I've done. And then we give it to somebody who's never made a cup of tea and they'll look at it and think, Oh, I've no idea what I'm, what I'm talking about here. Or, uh, well, I know what I'm doing. I'll, I'll miss this step out. And then suddenly, you know, you haven't got a cup of tea. But um, I suppose the point is, as you've just alluded to, is that if you, the, the most often common mistake in any set of rules, actually, I, get, I guess this would apply to, if you don't follow that turn sequence or the game sequence or the, the sequence for choosing the procedure. Or yes, exactly. You've got to get into that procedure, and some people uh, are blind to that. Well, I mean, I don't know about people who drink coffee, but people who drink tea, do you put the milk in first or the milk in at last? Well, according to Boris, see that that would be a big debate amongst. <laughs> Boris, the Boris that'd be a big debate. This isn't. I don't like to go into politics here, but Boris has had a lot of problems with him making a, a cup of tea this week, where. I think he put the tea. I think he put the water in first onto the tea bag, and then the milk after, and then 
there's a big backlash over social media for that. So, absolute case in point that, yes, exactly. What do you put the milk in first? You put the water in first. You put the tea bag in first. You use the tea bag or to use loose leaves. And it goes on and on and on. And that's for a cup of tea that we all know how to make. So, a set of war games rules, particularly one covering World War Two, from the which which was an entirely different beast in 1945 to what it was in 1939 is i don't know mate are you, um, my hat's off to you for taking this on over a three-year period and and hoping to get it done this this winter mostly i've been i've been waylaid by um working hard to to uh to save up enough capital to produce miniatures yeah. i mean it really does take a lot of money yeah. to uh to start making your own miniatures well since you've touched on that, let's talk about 2D6 wargaming then, because that's that's what I know you as. So where did that come from? How, how did that grow to where it is now? Um, <laughs> I'm a man full of hate. No. Um, <laughs> what, for yourself? <laughs> basically, basically um, wargames that use a single D6, and then they're like, oh, but there's there's more of a chance, so you add another D6. Uh, but this tank can shoot, you know, 66. So it's attacks 66. It's, it's bucket of dice games, basically, right? So you're looking for sixes. So for every six d6, you'll get one success, essentially, on average. So you know, and then you're like, oh, I've got, I've got ten tanks, and they all throw this many dice, and I've got flank, and there's no cover, and I'll throw 40 d6, right? And it's a little bit, I think it's a little bit like gambling, because you, there's an excitement whilst you look for the sixes, and then you, you've got those sixes, and then the opponent throws them as saving throws, whatever. And it's just so random, it's like Monopoly, you know? It's like, when you play Monopoly, you know, you throw the dice, and then it's you just buy whatever you land on. And if you do that, chances are, if you're lucky, you'll win. That's how Monopoly works. It's it's a look based game, and it really irritates me because it's not. I don't think it's realistic. When when you drive your car or when you make your cup of tea, to go back a, our other analogy, you don't have every um, possibility come out. You don't have a bad cup of tea, a med- you know, a, a not so good cup of tea, a good cup of tea, and a super cup of tea. You know, you, you don't. If you made four cups of tea, the chances are they'd have an average, they'd average out to be the same, wouldn't they? Yeah, unless you changed your tea bags or you used a kettle that you found in an alleyway or something like that. You know, on average, people perform averagely. So that's that's the method behind all my rule sets is that generally to generate chance, I like to use 2d6. Because on average, you'll get an average result. You'll get seven. You get you get you'll get you'll get uh, six, seven, eight more times than you'll get anything else. And I, I think that's how people perform. And I think that's how even under stressful conditions you can modify it a little bit so you can you can put a minus one or a minus two on, and you just you're still getting an average, but you're getting a lower yeah. average. And that's why it's called two D six. Okay, so. Um... To some people then let's let's be the devil's advocate here would say how do you get granularity into rules where you're only rolling 2d6 
Um, it's easy. It's really easy because um, all the possibilities on two d six is two yeah. to twelve. So you, you've already you've automatically you've got a wider range than a d six or a d eight or d ten. Um, but you don't have like the randomness of using say like a d twenty. I I must admit I've probably done slightly more role playing games than I have um, war gaming. But I've I've jacked in role playing games because generally people don't play uh, their character; they play themselves, and they use a lot of our character knowledge and stuff like that. And I, I've, I've basically had enough with it. But it, I, I played a wide range of systems with a wide range of dice and sometimes cards. One of the best uh, role playing game systems I've ever played was uh, Deadlands, the original Deadlands before they. They commercialized it, and it's a it's probably the best role playing game uh, system for combat and stuff like that. And they use they use polygon dice, so they'll use uh, you can use numerous d4s, d6s, d8s, d10s, d12s, d20s, and cards. So it's it's pretty crazy. But from playing those kind of games, I got a lot of experience of chance and dice and stuff like that. And I settled on. Uh, 2d6 and I think I think that's the best possible combo because it's got a nice little range it's not too big it's not too small and it's it's not completely random it's not equal chance for everything um you know and it gives you a bell curve and I think I think most experiences in life uh, are yeah, a bell curve I'd, I would tend to agree with that to be honest it's um yeah I Oddly enough, uh, in the last couple of months, I've just started to play Dungeons and Dragons again for the first time in 30 years, I guess, um, and gone back to Dungeons. Is that the fifth edition yes, of D20? Yeah, using. It's yeah. so random. Yeah, it's just so I, random. I would... Sometimes you're fantastic. Sometimes you're yeah, absolutely yeah. abysmal. And any dice roll, I don't care if it's a D6 or a D100, if it's a single dice roll. It's prone to spikes, isn't it? Spikes, you know, along the whole. There's a, as much chance of rolling a one as there is a twenty or a fifteen or a, a twelve. There's no, you you cannot. It doesn't really matter if you add in modifiers to that because there's no way of influencing that once that single dice roll is there. Um, it, it it becomes reliant on your stat, uh, your skill yeah. that you apply to it. That's your modifier, basically, and it, it becomes all about that. And and no, you can't no, write and, dice and this is what I mean because it doesn't matter what modifier you put on there. If you if you've got a target score of fifteen, and you're going to roll a, a d twenty, then if you at least if you roll two d twenty, say or two d six, you've got your curve. You've got a bell curve, haven't you? That you'll have yeah you'll always the, average at out. the top of the curve there you'll have your most common results and at either end and this this is very true in life and I, you know what you've just said does resonate with me because i talk about this at work quite a lot most people exist around the six seven or eight of, a, of 2d6 don't they most people exist in that bubble you'll have you'll and then you'll have your outliers of the double one or the double six and then gradually you know you'll reap the the people on either side of that I'll, I'll climb up to the top of that curve where most of us sit so it's it's an interesting um that's an interesting concept actually uh, as to why 2d6 or a, a mechanism 
similar to 2d6 would give you that result that you can moderate with a modifier or two but there's it's less prone to a swing and, and as well in, in game design i'd rather something be um very very unlikely and that's why you didn't do it rather than you can only shoot you know to the next garden with your submachine gun you know <laughs> yeah i think i think it's more realistic is like you don't do it because it's unrealistic rather than you yes. don't do it because you're not yeah. allowed yeah or um and this this comes to the uh, realism angle and i I don't know. I struggle sometimes when people talk about realism within war games because I'm not quite sure that we are we can actually put that much re, that much realism into a toy, into a toy soldier that we put on the table uh, when there's a million factors that would affect that person in real life as as to their performance. But you want you want it as close as possible to the decision of that one, if, say if it's a single figure or a single base of figures, you want their choice of action to be um, a realistic choice, don't you? So whether or not they're going to assault over that hedge into the German position or they're going to find some cover and shoot. So you want the player to make the decision that would be the most likely, the most realistic decision that those men would make rather than thinking well actually i've got two i've got a, a modifier of plus three and I, I can work out the odds and if i spike this dice then i'm going to do it but in actual fact gaming the game playing the rules not the period and i think there's a there's a rules manufacturer out there that uses a similar tagline to that um but Yes, you, you, you're singing. We're singing from the same hymn sheet, I think, on on that line. Then, so this this set of rules then is it? Does it cover the whole of the World War Two, the whole of the period, or is it geared more towards one aspect? I I focused it on North Africa, um, rightly or wrongly. I did that to build the rules so that I could um, see. The thing about North Africa is that. It's kind of like an equal playing field in one sense not in the, the sense of the the weapons and the material but the the, the environment um so did it i did it, i used that one and and once you if you start trying to devise rules that have tanks in that people are very passionate about like t-34s tigers panthers um stuff like that stuff that people are really passionate about is that they they're always throwing things at you about oh well the t-34 could do this and the, the tiger could do that and you know and if you don't have those aspects of um passion then you don't get your rules set jaded and that's why I chose that one. But ultimately, it's looking like it's going to end up as a core rule set and then some real nice, detailed um, yeah. theatre expansions, to be honest. That sounds an interesting way to go, actually, because I think to have one core rule set to rule them all, from Poland in 1939 through to Berlin in '45, is a big ask in, in one rule book. Whereas if you... If you yeah, if oh, you've got a oh, it's so enormous. That's, that's focused on one aspect. Um, the, the, 
there's an American rule set, uh, I can't remember what it's called, um, and it, it does 1915 to 2006 or something like that, and it's like, it's like how can you possibly take in all the facets that you know of evolution yeah. in, in mobile armoured warfare you know, for almost a hundred years and expect anything other than genericism. I've asked you that question. I've taken us off the topic, uh, which is a, the bad question master in me, but we were talking about 2D6 and you said that 2D6 is because of the mechanism that you use within the rules, but how did you get into the sculpting then and the actual production of models? Um... Basically, there's there's one exception to this, and that's Mick Ho at Leaving Miniatures. He'll if you were go and ask him to make you something, he'll make you it, right? He's a real good guy, and he'll sort you out. But so apart from him, everyone else, I was like, I was like, oh, are you going to make this infantry or or this tank or or can you make some of these? And they either they they generally just didn't reply to me. Um, and I was like, "All oh, right, okay, maybe I can modify some bits." And I modified some bits. Um, you know, and doing modification in six mil, you think it's quite hard, but um, I managed it, and uh, I was quite pleased with the results. But um, I didn't think that I could start a miniatures company at all. So I went to, I approached um, a very big American manufacturer that sells models in 285 scale like I do and said can I sell your stuff and they're a real big company probably one of the biggest six mil companies certainly in America if not the world um, and they said you have to have a shop and I was like I don't have a shop uh, the economy is really bad the the rates on a shop you know the taxes the, the rent in for the floor space is astronomical in my country I, I can't do it I can go to shows and and like the minimum order was like thousands of pounds as well it really was thousands of pounds and I was like you know I can do that I, I can order the minimum amount of stock and I can go to shows and they were like well we thought about it but now nah, you gotta you gotta have a shop and then guess who guess who guess who I'm gonna mention now it's Pete it's Peter Abacus and he made he made the Sherman and stuff, and I and I looked at it and I was like, that's 3D printed. I can tell it's 3D printed. Um, someone someone bought me one at a show and gave it to me, and I was like, that's pretty good, you know. It's a pretty good miniature. And I thought, ah, go on then, I'll try it. And I and I got in contact with someone, and I was like, can you do CAD? And they were like, oh yeah, I can do CAD. And I got that done, and I found someone to print it. Finding someone to print your stuff is really difficult because everyone says they can print it. And when we get into this scale and this detail and stuff, there's very, very few people who can print it. You need a real good commercial printer. The home printers are like two or three thousand pounds for a good one. The commercial printers are probably more like eleven to fifteen thousand pounds for a good one. That's the difference. Um. And and I got into it like that, and and I've I've paid for all the mistakes that everyone else made. 
Um, but fortunately, there hasn't been that many, to be honest. And I got, I think I got lucky. I was in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. Um, because I, I think my miniatures are pretty damn good. Um, and I don't do any of it myself. I've, I've recently, I've started building an Anglo-Saxon wall. I, the big spoiler, I'm going to be doing some Anglo-Saxon and Viking stuff. Um, and I want to, I want to take the poses to the next level as well, and make the poses really interesting. You know, not just just everyone that's a carbon copy with a spear bolt upright. You know, I want to make it, I want to make it look good. Um, but you know, I started with a World War Two thing, and I really shouldn't have started with World War Two. I shouldn't have started with World War Two. There's, there's too much stuff to make. If you want to make, oh, it's. It's not so much of a whack. It's like a mine shaft. Yeah, it's just, just, just massive. It's just so huge, um, which is why I've taken a small tangent and I'm just, I'm going to do the Anglo-Saxons. Um, I'm going to do the Vikings, and that'll probably lead on to Normans at some point because it's logical. Um, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't recommend this to anyone, <laughs> especially. If you're married and um, you know your wife um, tells you what to do and stuff, because you're just going to get divorced. Unfortunately, I'm not married, um, so that can't happen to me. So, but um, I mean, it's absolutely crazy what you're going to have to do without to to get by and, and to pay pay people and and you could argue you can do it all yourself and stuff, but you've still got to lay out for the machinery and and the. I think with wargaming being, um, I forget what the phrase is now, but it's it's, a, it's niche, it's a luxury item, isn't it? I don't think wargaming per se is expensive, or well, it can be as expensive as you want to make it. You know what I mean? To participate in it, as long as it's not Games Workshop, you're not spending twenty quid for one figure. Um, uh, it's it's relatively low cost of entry, particularly in six mil. Um, but to hear you talk from the manufacturing side to say that you know that there's considerable outlays here that really give you life choices to make on how you fund and where you put your monetary resources to try and make the business grow is really interesting. How how long has two D six wargaming been a business concern then? What do you mean by a business concern? Well, well, in existence as a wargaming company. Oh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I think it's three years, four years. Basically, whenever I published Banzai, that was when it started. I think 2016. I think. I don't know when in 2016, okay. but it's it's 2016. Uh, yeah, so about three years coming up to yeah. four years. Um. Obviously, like just selling one rule book, you don't you don't really make a lot. So I'm just running it at a massive loss. <laughs> um, but the figure thing is like a different league of loss. Like like running it before, just selling rule books and stuff, and having paid people to do illustrations in rule books and stuff was that was that was tasty, you know. But I mean, selling having people make molds and casting and buying metal and 
paying people to do CAD and 3D printing and hand sculpting and, and everything is is uh it's thousands, it's thousands of pounds. Oh my goodness, Rob. <laughs> right, okay. And you've got you talk about a a dream catalogue of a thousand items. Well, I would do. I, I certainly want. I certainly think there's a thousand items for World War Two, and that that probably doesn't include any infantry. Um, but other than that, I mean, there's, there's more than that. There's more. Um, I, I have had a bit of an eye open recently. Is that if you go to if you go to one of the other makers and you look through their catalogue and you look at all the stuff they they make, I think you've got to be really careful about what you choose to make, and you you've got to love it. You've got to love what you're making. Um, yeah. I've recently acquired a range of buildings from uh, a gentleman in Malmo, and is that right, Malmo in Sweden? Yeah, Sweden. Um, yeah, Jonas Svensson. I've recently acquired his old line of buildings, which was more miniatures. It's, it's more samurai stuff. Um, there's about there's about twenty pieces. Uh, and yep. I'll be putting that into production. Um, so I guess I'm going to have to make some samurai at some point as well. <laughs> yes, it will go. It's a it's a natural. But then then I've got the Trinity, haven't I? I've got the rule set and a, and a set of buildings and a, and a and the armies for it. So. And then a boxed game. Almost, almost yeah, yeah. One stop, one stop shop for all your samurai stuff. <laughs> for all your niche of niche. <laughs> yes. Well, listen. If if you do a box set of two armies, a few buildings, and a set of rules, I'll uh, I'll put a pre-order. All right. Okay. I'll hold you to that. But yeah, it's, it's definitely something. Uh, I've I've gamed um, Samurai in fifteen mil using uh, Peter Pig in the past, and and still still do actually. Uh, but uh, I do fancy doing um, a big big Samurai game at some point. Um. Okay, so um, I did allude at this somewhere actually uh, during this interview that you'd sent out a sample of your wares to me, and in front of me, Robert, is a box, a box of delights with my name on it. A box of delights. Um, my wife did say you've not ordered something else, have you? And I said, Look, no, I haven't paid for this. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's the, there's a small cat. I don't think she believes. Sean has not but, paid f for these items. I sent them of my own volition, for my own promotion, it's my own selfish um, mannerisms. Your own selfish yes. knees, yeah. So you can get that Porsche on order. Um, and I'm going to do a live unboxing um, now. I know this is an audio podcast. And normally you see live, live unboxings on YouTube. But I don't know if anyone can hear this. I've got a, a little one, a uh, blade here. I've just sliced open the package. There's a lovely 2D6 Wargaming um, uh, sticker on the front with the, the two dice. You've rolled 11 there on the dice. Now, now that's, that's quite a good roll, isn't well, it? Well, if you look at the dice, that, that those facings give you the maximum combination to make seven. There's more ways to make seven from those combinations than any other combinations on those dice. So there's oh, a little bit, some oh, yeah. a little bit behind the curtain there of um, the thinking into this uh, logo. It's a very striking logo. I like my, it. My megalomania knows no bounds. <laughs> well, I've often thought I need to get somebody to design me a logo for the podcast, other than some old crappy black and white photograph I've I've got up at the moment, but. 
Um, have, have you designed that yourself? Um, I did, but my my illustrator that I used for Banzai did it. I just I literally sketched it on a on an old fag packet, and then he's he's put the real magic to it. I will put a picture of this up in the show notes, actually. But just for those who um, who haven't seen the logo, it's a yellow background uh, with a black border, uh, and it says two d six in black in large letters with two white dice, and then wargaming underneath it. Now then, I'm going to open the package for the first time, and inside I've got some crinkly paper. I genuinely have not looked in this. Now this arrived. Probably a couple of weeks ago now, is it? Ten days ago? I can't remember when you sent it out. But I've resisted um, opening it because I knew we were going to have a talk. And I thought this would be quite nice to open it up on live on the show. And inside I've got three separate packages. Now I'm hoping there's something wargaming related in here. <laughs> and not... <laughs> not something uh, that uh, uh, the police would be interested in. But, um, okay, so what have we got? We've got we've got T-34, M-40, Panther A, and a Berg Panther. Is that how you pronounce it, Berg yep. Panther? That's in the first package. And I've got three chassis there. These are very... Let me get my glasses on. I am somewhat hard of sight. Don't know if that's the phrase. Now, I will say I've seen some of these models, um, not up close, but I've seen uh, these available for sale at Partisan with, is it through Les? Um, Les Hammond of Terrain Shed, he sells them. Terrain Shed, that's the yeah. word I was I, I've got my own. Yeah. I've got my own website, there's, there's Richard Phillips, he does shows, he sells bits. I don't think he uses a trading name. He's actually fairly local to me, actually. I hadn't realised this, but he, he belongs to a club that's just down the right. road from me. So I must look him out. I think we we have communicated over the internet. He's a nice guy, and he, he, does uh, a, he does the Cold War Commanders thing. So he might be a good right. guess for your has show. He to, has he got something to do with Scotia? He, he He's selling, um, amongst other retailers, he's, he's, he's punting those at shows he goes to, yeah. Right. Okay, these are very nice. Right, I'm just I've opened two of the packages. I'm just uh, going into the third. I've built one tank. And right. Let's have a look what these are. These look like infantry. These are the brand new uh Russian infantry that'll be coming out um any day now. Probably next week. Wow. So that'll be uh, that will be the last bit of November for 2019. Is this an exclusive then to the God's Own Scale podcast? It is, yes. Oh my word. Right, so before I talk about them, because I'm very excited about them, they look absolutely splendid. Um, I've got, and I said my World War II knowledge isn't great, but I do recognise a panther when I see a panther. And that is absolutely good. I am not just saying this um, because Rob's on the other end of the line. Uh, I can talk very straight when I need to, but this is gorgeous. That is... I am going to paint this up. That is gorgeous. So is this one 
285 scale it's, it's practically the same as 300 scale uh, uh, over the length of a tank if it was a Sherman tank they're about 6 meters long if you had a 285 scale one and a 300 scale one the difference in the model would be about a millimeter and that would only be on the length so that they're almost the same so I'm holding the panther and it says panther A now I know a panther but I don't know the variants what is a Panther A? Um, the the Panther had essentially had three major variants. It had it started with the D, which was never really an official variant. It should actually be a, a lowercase D. Then you have the uh, the Panther A, where they made substantial changes, um, mostly to uh, the vision ports and the openings on the tank. Yeah. And then you have the Panther G, which is the final iteration, essentially. Of, uh, of the Panther series. So you, if you've got the A, um, uh, my A model comes with optional and configurable side skirts. There should be a little strip in there. I do have, I was going to ask you what these are. They're, they're the side skirts for the Panther A. So these yeah. these Panther A side skirts, because the the, uh, the Soviets use a lot of anti-tank rifles and stuff, they, they hung side yes. skirts on to prevent those kinds of attack. I can see how those fit on very nice. They, they were, they were, they're, they're cut into about four or five sections along the length of the tank, and they were mounted literally yeah. on two hooks. Right. So yeah. as they went along and rubbed up against buildings and hedges and stuff, occasionally some would yeah. fall off. So the idea here oh, is that you can you can snip some off, and then you can make all yeah. of your little Panther A's look a little bit unique. Ah, oh, that is fantastic. It's just something, something. it was a little feature we thought we'd implement and see how it went. Um, yeah. So if people like it, I'd like to know, because we might do some more on, on other ones. Well, what I think I'll do, uh, Rob, is I'll get these painted up, and I shall do exactly what you just told me. Uh, I will snip up these side skirts uh, and mount them on the vehicle, and I'll put them up on your Facebook page. All right, great. Um I'm no, I'm no great painter of, uh, of vehicles, but I shall do that because, I, and again, I'm not saying this just because you're here now, but this is an incredibly clean cast model with lots of detail, lots of surface detail um, that is easily recognisable as a panther. There's no flash on it whatsoever. I don't know if you've cleaned it up before you've sent it I, down. I have literally. They are random selections. I don't even. I don't need to uh, to, to cherry pick to uh, send you something. Yeah, these are clean as a whistle. The the casting that, company I use is fantastic. You can't see any mold lines at all. I cannot see any mold lines. If you find um, one, <laughs> tell me because I I can't find <laughs> it. Know. No, I can't. I can't. There's, there's no flash. There's no mold lines. Um, the turret uh, sits very nicely uh, onto the chassis, um, and I could make some very uh, childish bang bang noises as I rotate the turret round. <laughs> that is gorgeous. That is as nice. Um, um, I do. I do owe a, a much gratitude to the guy who does the CAD for me. Um, his name's yeah. Tim. He's a Dutchman. It does fantastic work. He's amazing. He really is. Yeah, yeah. 
and uh, yeah I mean this this is absolutely gorgeous so next to it and again I know a T34 when I see one I can see a T34 in my hands um, and there is no mold lines there is no flash it is just entirely perfect as it is and that is that I might prefer that to the Panther actually that is very nice mate how many T34s do you make um, that series is currently in production um, I think there's going to be about uh, somewhere between 7 and 9 total and there's also the offshoot series of the it's SU85 and SU100 yes. that's an anti-tank uh, it's a tank destroyer version um, that the Soviets made on the same chassis yeah. So because we do 3D prints and because we do computer-aided design, it makes sense to do all of the tanks in one series, even the offshoots, because essentially it's copy and paste. You know, yeah. it's not always like I think on the on the T34 series we're changing the road wheels uh, and the tracks and stuff like that. But essentially you'll get you'll at least get some similarity amongst the uh, the Genesis yeah. in the in that you'll you'll get more mileage for your money if you uh, if you do the whole thing. Now, I know there's a T-34, 76, and then an 85, isn't there? There um, is. There's, we're, I think we're doing about four or five T-34, 76s, yeah. and about three or four 85s. Now, the envelope here says T-34 M40. What does that refer to? Um, there's different ways. Because it's Russian, it's not very well catalogued and, and what you'll find is a lot of the classifications like you'll get t34 76 model a b c right they're they're what the germans devised based right. on captured tanks you can have differences in the same year because they're from different factories and the way that the factories operated um they didn't have they might have had one machine at one factory and one and not had it at another and they might have also made minor components at a tertiary factory and sent that, you know, like sub-assemblies, road wheels and stuff like that. And then they'd yeah. send those to the factory where they actually assembled the T-34. So what you'll end up with is a real hodgepodge. So our T-34s are done on, on year models. So it'd be model 1940, model 1942, stuff like that. And that, it, it, it just... It allows us to iron out a lot of this like ABC stuff that the Germans did, which was quite um, it was it was rather too specific, and the way that the Russians keep files, it's not very compatible. Yeah, that is a gorgeous model. Um, the barrel is dead straight. There's no bending on the barrel. In fact, on the Panther, which is considerably longer barrel, that is arrow straight. There's uh, there's no bending. Our the 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 metal that we use. Um, I'm not even sure what it is. I need to ask. Um, <laughs> I asked for. Yeah, I think I think I mentioned it when I did it because the metal they're using is really really hard. Yeah. Um, and do you know, like a normal a normal set of infantry, you'll just cut one off with a knife quite easily. Yes. You can't do that with my infantry. You have to use uh, side cutters or flush cutters. Right, okay. and then you, you don't do it fast because you'll ping them across the room and end up with it in your eye, or you'll lose them. Um, and the metal's the metal's quite hard. It, it's still it's still tin. It's still it's, it's a white metal alloy. Yeah. 
Um, but I think there's a little coffer in there, and what happens is is that um, the ankles and the barrels of all the guns are, are, are real stiff. They are stiff, yeah. They are absolutely. There's not a kink in it at all. The third vehicle I've got here is a Berg Panther. Now I've no idea what a Berg Panther is. This one um, is it's a Berg Panther Model D, so it's yep. the first one, but. They weren't available at, at Kursk, which is the Panthers' debut. Yeah. Um, it's, it's essentially it's a recovery vehicle for your Panthers. Okay. So it, it, it is a Panther chassis, um, and that's the first iteration of the of the Panther recovery vehicle that they did. And I am scrutinising it, and I cannot see a mould line, and I can't see <laughs> any flash. I'm desperately trying to find something. Ah, I can't find anything, mate. No, it's <laughs> it is clean as a whistle. That is gorgeous. I've I've heard of a bird panther, but I've never actually seen one. So uh, that is it. It looks like a panther, doesn't it, without the turret on the center. Yeah, yeah, essentially is the descript best description I can get. Okay, I've got then. Um, now, I'm not sure what this is, but I've got what looks like to be uh, a rifleman. Uh, is he out of a foxhole, or is he... Oh, no, what you've got is the... Uh, <laughs> you've probably picked up the most interesting uh, infantry stri strip that we'll be doing. Um, these are individual apparatus for Russian infantrymen crossing a river, and it's essentially a set of waders, oh. and a, like a, an inner tube from a, a lorry tyre. <laughs> Okay. That's that's what you're imagining. It was actually built for purpose. It wasn't cobbled together from those items. Yeah. Um, and and a set of paddles which are a lot like uh, what you'd play ping pong with. And essentially, yeah. what they're doing is they're they're river crossing. Uh, there's two posers aiming the rifle, covering yeah. their their comrades as they cross the river. And there's there's two that are actually uh, paddling themselves across. They're they're waterline models, so you actually cut the stem off and then you yes. end up with. Now, where's that from? That you must have done some research then to say, uh, Rus I've never heard of Russians sitting inside a tire crossing a river. Uh, that's not a figure range that I've ever been aware of. Any? I was researching the boats, the little boats and stuff that they use in the pontoon bridges. We've got some of those in the works, um, and, and there was these, and I was like, "Oh, can you?" Uh, I sent them to the figure sculptor and I said, "Can you make these?" He says, "Yeah, no problem." And I said, can I have half price? Because there's only half a figure. <laughs> and he said, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, okay, we're having those. You got away with that then? Yeah. And you can actually see that these are tyres. Um, there's the uh, there's the ridge on the on the tyre uh, that they're sitting in. And you can indeed see the two guys with paddles. One of them looks like he's got uh, a side cap on and the other's got a helmet. They are gorgeous. They are nice. They are. That is something I've never seen before. We, we've. I mean, I've, I don't have a massive range of miniatures out yet, but we've already done some things that no other miniature makers make in yeah. six mil, and that's the Berg Panther you just talked about. That yeah. figure there, uh, the river crossing Soviet infantry, and we also do the the Panther Erzats, the one disguised as an M10 for the Battle of the Bulge. Yeah. That is good. I've got the figures now. I've got the infantry in my hand. And the first thing I'm going to comment on, Rob, is this is something that I don't know if anybody else does, 
but it frustrates me no ends that they don't but it looks like you've got the figure code on a little tab yeah on one side it reads 2d6 on the other side it, it'll read a code which is specific to that uh, army and um and a code i need to publish them somewhere but essentially if you find some in a drawer five years later after you've bought a load of them which i hope you do by the way if anyone wants to buy some and put them in a drawer for five years that's perfectly fine um you know and then you find them and you go oh, i can't remember who makes these you know it's on there yeah these that that is something that i think more manufacturers should do but it, it's a big help now i've got two separate sprues here i've got one which is uh rifleman russian rifleman they're obviously uh russian rifleman and there's three sorry four poses uh, we've got a kneeling firing a standing firing we've got a guy crouching forward um as though he's under fire and then we've got another guy who's advancing with his rifle at uh, uh at a low angle um and they are they are uh, well this sounds very sycophantic and it sounds like i'm blowing smoke where the sun doesn't shine rob but these are very nice you must be very pleased with these i, I am like i say i was i was in the right place at the right time doing the right thing and that's how you end up with with what yeah. i've got uh, i've been very fortunate to to have a, such a good 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 lineup yeah of uh, people to work with What's what's the plan with the infantry? I, I know we've talked about a thousand separate codes, but um, what what is the plan? Are you looking to get sort of Russian front stuff out first for the infantry? So we've got some. Will we have some Germans to go up against these? Yeah, there's there's a full set of Russian infantry coming out. Um, I've got another set of Russian infantry coming out that no one makes. Um, and then we we will do some Germans again that no one makes. Okay, what, I'm going to make some really interesting Germans. And what what are they? Are you willing to disclose? I can't tell you. Excellent, I love that. I love a bit of secrecy. But I can send you some. Okay, when they're ready, I can. I don't mind sending you some. I, t I tell you what, we'll get you on again um, to talk about this because, um, as I've said, this year has been my um, baptism of fire with World War Two, really, where I've dug into it a lot more. Um, and the, I'll tell you why these Russians are interesting me and I've dug these books out that I, I mentioned earlier uh, by a guy called Andrew Rolf um, Grey Steel Red Storm Regimental Wargaming Scenarios in the Soviet Union 1941 to 43 and then there's a campaign book and these are going to be perfect for that yep. purpose yep um, absolutely these are absolutely stunning so I've got the rifle sprue, and then there's a second sprue. Every, every single down. sprue is is every figure is hand sculpted. So essentially, I have to buy to make a sprue. I have to buy four. I, I put four poses on a sprue to buy a foot. You know, so if I'm having four done, I might as well have four different ones. Yeah, you know, I'm paying the same yeah. money. So what's the point in carbon copying it? So every figure on a sprue is different. But they could sit on a base entirely uh, you know on a on a spearhead size base um or whatever your chosen rules is and there is character there is movement there is uh definition of what those figures are you can tell these figures are russian world war ii infantry without putting them under your nose you know what you're looking at they are they are splendid 
the the second sprue I've got R thirty. Now that that first sprue was R eleven. R eleven. That's right. Yeah, R thirty is submachine gunners. So that's your PPSH forty one. Now it actually it looks like one of them's got a sort of Maxim an LMG. Oh oh if oh right if you got the light machine gun uh, strip. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you, you on there? You've got you've got. Uh, it's not a maximum. It's a, it's DP twenty eight. Well, there you go. I told you I didn't know World War Two. It was uh, the Russians called it the record player. Okay. Because it's got a massive round uh, drum on the top. Yeah. Yes. So that, they called that the record player. Right. Uh, okay. And on that strip, you also have three other riflemen carrying. Um, they're not carrying drums of ammunition. They're carrying. Uh, it's inside. They've got boxes of ammunition, and inside is yep. the drums. Um, because there's three crewmen for him. One thing that wargamers just sort of kind of omit is the logistics a little bit, and and yeah. for a light machine gun, those those half of the squad that man the light machine guns, they're carrying a lot of ammo. Yeah, the I think wargamers like the sexy bloke shooting the gun. But, but not, his friends. Say, not his friends. Yeah. You can <laughs> come in, but not your friends. <laughs> They're essentially meat shields, aren't yeah. they? I think, for general wargamer. But again, these are four separate sculpts, uh, clearly uh, advancing into contact with the enemy because they're crouching as they go. But there's three discernible separate sculpts of guys carrying these ammunition uh, boxes, and you've got the guy shooting uh, the. And I've already forgotten. D what you DP twenty eight. There you go, DP twenty eight. I uh, so I have... did the sculpt. This is this is the first uh, light machine gun sculpts we've done. I did it. Yeah. I didn't do him prone. I did it. Uh, the guns shouldered but floating in the air. So the idea yeah. is that you can base it. You can build a little. You can put some sandbags there or a bush or something. Or that, a bit of wall. Yeah, a bit of a wall or something. And yeah, I just thought I wasn't quite ready to do the. Uh, to do prone sculpts yet, I didn't know what they were going to turn out like. Uh, there are some though, because I think the uh, we were forced to do the the anti tank rifle as a prone sculpt. Right. Just logistics of the actual. The weapon is huge. It's about weapon. eight feet long. Is it? <laughs> yeah, it's like a scaffolding tube. Um, in every sense of the of the manner, it's heavy. It weighs about. 18 kilos or something like that it's enormous it's it's, it's just a massive rifle yeah yeah for shooting with tanks. a big charge in it yeah this uh, yeah this will suit uh, so as rob's just described this guy's kneeling uh with the gun pointing out sort of shouldered but it's going to be perfect to put a a little bit of wall or or fence or something uh, for him to rest that gun on and that is going to look very nice mate these are these are great <laughs> these and if, really if, you, are. if you grab one as well and just um you know someone who's stood upright and just try and bend him at the ankles it's it's almost impossible yeah they're, yeah, they're solid a, they're absolutely solid that that metal the, they use is great the the strip's very difficult to move never mind anything else um and just going back to the mold lines and flash issue uh there is none and what's very nice is the bottom of the strip is completely smooth. There's like you don't need to, other than clip them off. There's nothing you need to do with these. There's nothing you don't even need to sand the bottom of the base. They sit completely um, flat 
on the table. Um, as as reviews go, um, Rob, um, I'd struggle to fault anything at all about these. Um, and I appreciate this being an audio podcast and not not a video. Uh, it's difficult for the listener to uh, appreciate what I'm talking about. But where can they see pictures of what I'm talking about? Um, you can go to www.2d6wargaming.com. There's images on there. Um, I've on my on my YouTube channel, 2d6 Wargaming. There's um, there's videos because I, I've reviewed so many before I made my own miniatures. I reviewed I've I've probably reviewed every major six mil manufacturer. Um, there's there's stuff on there. You can see it on there. Um, yeah. In in video. Uh, Is there anything my, of the Russians up there yet? Uh, no, no, no. You can't see the infantry. Um, no. You can't see the infantry on my website yet, but by the time this podcast out, you probably can see my infantry on on my commercial website. Excellent. This podcast will probably go out next uh, towards the end of next week now. So, uh, what we're looking at around about the twenty seventh, twenty eighth of November. That should so. be about the time that I've done all the photographs already. They're all loaded up, waiting. As soon as I get the Brilliant. stock, I'll I'll unleash them on the world. Well, I am. I'm going away tomorrow until Sunday. But as soon as I get back, I am going to be painting these up, and I will. I'll put them. You know, I'm no pro painter, so I'm sure you get far more professional uh, renditions of your figures up there. But I will. I'll. I'll paint these up, and I'll. I'll post something up um, on Two D Six on the Facebook group because um, I can see myself. Uh, getting a few of these uh, this may once i've uh, finished the two projects i've got on the go this could be next year's first big project uh, but as we all like to do i like to stock up on the projects first so uh, uh if i put an order to you i uh, i shall uh, i'll let you know and uh, i shall do a further review but what i'd like to do rob actually is if you could get if you could come back onto the podcast perhaps uh, in the new year, or when you've got the next sort of uh, round of releases or something new to talk about, because these are these are really good. If you if you like these, you're going to love the Anglo-Saxons. Right. Okay. Well, Maybe I can come uh, back come back for those. Yeah, definitely. What's, what's your time frame on them? Um, the Anglo-Saxons, uh, they should be available in two months. Exactly two months, so okay. uh, end of January, end of start January? Of February. Excellent. Well, let's let's make that a date then for and uh, there's buildings and buildings, right? <laughs> <laughs> and a set of rules coming. Uh, I don't know about that. Definitely, <laughs> definitely some on the horizon. Definitely some on the horizon. But okay. whether they'll be ready, I don't know. Whether right. Ready, okay. I, know. I, I won't get you to commit too early then. You've got two of the uh, the three there. Uh, I can almost. send you some sneak peeks actually after after we we get off the air. Oh mate, that would be marvellous. Yeah, yeah, I'd uh, love to take a look at those. Um, the yeah, folks, if uh, for listeners out there who do the World War Two in six mil or one two hundred eighty fifth scale, these are something to look at, and more power to your elbow, Rob. To get these out there and get them known because um these are the equal of anything 
I've ever seen and better in in every case I would say um, and that isn't uh, just being sycophantic because you're on the air with me mate these are lovely they these have blown me away they really have they I, I set so, out to have the miniatures that I would want as a war game yeah yeah and and that must be great to be able to make that a reality to get the figures that you would want as a war gamer and to actually make that then happen I was really lucky, and the team that I've managed to assemble to to achieve this, um, I couldn't, I, I wouldn't change anyone that's in it, and uh, yeah. yeah, big big thanks to them really. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. be anything without. Them. Well, um, I'll I'll shout these from the rooftops, mate, uh, on the on the podcast. I'll 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 create a link which I'll put into uh, the show notes as a permanent feature, um, and we'll point people towards it as much as possible. Um, because they they are really nice, and I cannot wait to get back um, after the weekend and and get some paint on those. So um, we've got Germans, we've got Russians. Um, what else have you got available now? What's available now? Um, there's a there's a selection of uh, Panthers and Panther type tanks. So you got Jag Panther. I do have a couple, a little bit of. British things. I've got I've got a Deacon ammo carrier and a Deacon, which we used extensively in in North Africa. Yeah, that was that was like the Wave Zero miniature. That's the one. They're the ones that started it all. Right. Um. And I've got the T thirty four series coming up. But by the time this podcast's out, I will have um uh, a good range of, of Soviet infantry. Um. You know, just just more. Just I'll, I'll always have more because there's always something else coming along. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to run out of material soon, are you? No, no. Not starting from scratch. No, that's <laughs> one of the benefits. Yeah. Well, let, listen. Let's hope we can get the word out there for TG6 uh, wargaming products because um, I don't think it's out there enough yet. Um, I've seen it on Les's stand at the. Uh, a few shows that I've seen him at where he's sharing with Mick um, but it, it deserves to be out there and deserves to be known um, because there are a lot of people out there that do uh, one two eight fifth or six mil World War 2 and this is going to go down an absolute treat with them um, mate it's been fantastic to talk to you tonight and I'm so glad that we finally got this interview together um a couple of things before we wind up one is um i've started a, a small segment and i should have prompted you with this but uh i do ask for a book uh that's dear to your heart and that you can recommend to readers um it can be in print out of print it can be a magazine if you want but just something that the readers can perhaps have a look at and uh add to their library because if there's one thing that we like uh, just as much as buying figures and, and painting figures it's it's getting a book uh, so is, it, is this a history book it's whatever you it, well it, it needs to be sort of relate it needs to be related in some way to wargaming or history right um, and it can it can be a magazine it can be a pamphlet but just something that you would a desert island book let's say that something if you were stranded on a desert island what would you hope you got in your collection of you? I don't uh, think I can say that. Oh, well, no, hobby related. Oh, right, right, right. Um, 
um, I, I've got loads of great history books. Um, I've actually I've had to tell my family that if I ever die, don't just give all my books to the charity shop because they're worth a lot of money. You know, you're paying like forty, fifty quid for a charity book, uh, for for a, for a book, you know, or more, you know. Um, but but my probably probably the book that impressed me the most that was a, a history type book was um, I can't remember the name of the author. I think he's a Spanish guy, but it was. Um, it's called the the BF one hundred and nine recognition guide, and it's the most comprehensive book I've ever read on a subject. And this this subject's obviously, uh, you know, Messerschmitt one hundred and nine. Um, but it it was so comprehensive. There was nothing that was in question, nothing that was in doubt, and there's the, the photographs are uh, really good. And the, the level of detail and the, the knowledge that the author had is, is colossal and amazing. And there was nothing it's left by out. a Spanish guy. Uh, I think uh, I think his last name is Fernandez, but I can't okay. remember. Well, don't worry. We can. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll. I'm sure someone it. will look it up. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'll certainly look it up and I'll put it in the show notes. But but uh, you you won't be able to find it. Um, you can't you can't buy it. It's out of print. All right. Um, it probably cost you. 40 quid plus, I imagine. There might be a library, a local library somewhere in the country that's got a dusty old copy somewhere. You never know. You never know. Um, thanks for that. Uh, anything else then you would like to say or get off your chest about the hobby or 2D6 wargaming before we close? No, I, I'd just like to say thanks, Sean, for, uh, for bringing me onto the platform and um, listening to me, putting up with me. <laughs> Um, thanks for tracking me down (laughs) I'm really glad uh, that you enjoyed the miniatures to be honest with you the the reaction that you've had is the same one that I've had from almost everybody Um, I don't doubt that I don't doubt that in the slightest because they are miniature masterpieces they're they're really good aren't they yeah I mean you know it just sounds like I'm saying that doesn't it but um, no well you've got to be passionate about your own product oh certainly yeah yeah, but it's so easy to be passionate about this one. Yeah, and you know, I can look at a fifteen mil tank or a ten mil tank or a, a twenty eight mil tank, and there's as much detail and artistry in this thing that I'm holding, this panther I'm holding in the palm of my hand now, and lovingly caressing, um, uh, as 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 any of those other models. It is, gen- listeners, it is genuinely. A beautiful thing so thank you to robert to uh, for uh, uh, clearly it's a, it's a passion of yours mate to to get these out there and the sacrifices in life that have been made uh, by yourselves by the sounds of it um not not least of which is financial uh, to get these things to market so well done mate is all i can say um okay so uh, i'm going to hold you to um probably an early february return if that's all right rob Uh, yep i'll be back yeah um with vikings by the sounds of it and hopefully a bit more world war ii as well by the sounds of it um are there do you get to any of the shows up and down the country as a regular thing i am going to joyous 6 2020 okay i've told 
Peter at Bacchus. So if Peter at Bacchus, if if you ever listen to this, yeah, don't you know make sure I'm there. All right, <laughs> the flesh is willing, I can get there. I want to be there. So it's a great show. It's a great show because everything is six mil. It's fantastic. It is. It is. I'm uh, I'm very much looking forward to next year's show because I'll be hopefully demonstrating uh, my well, it'll be my first attempt at putting on a six mil demonstration game. Um, I've I've kind of made a rub for my own back, I think, because running running this podcast, I think, might give people the impression I know what I'm doing in the hobby. And when they see my effort, they probably will be very much disappointed. But I'm going to enjoy putting it together anyway. And I'll look forward to meeting you there as well, Rob. Uh, we'll uh, we'll get together, have a coffee and sit down, have a chinwag. And Mike, we could actually record something there uh, as well. I intend to get a little bit of recording done uh, on the scene. I'm, I'm going to get a mobile recorder uh, and we'll, we'll have a chat there as well, mate. So uh, I'll look forward to it. So, uh, Rob, once again, thank you very much. I'm so sorry it's taken so long for us to get together. We've, uh, we've had this interview in the making for some time now, haven't we? Uh, but we finally got it done, and now I've got you. Then uh, you you will end up on the round robin of regular returning guests. I hope uh, to talk about two D six. Thank you very much. All right, mate. So uh, I'll catch up with you on the other side. Well, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Robert. Please do check out his products on the 2D6 website. They really are excellent quality and I'm more than happy to support Robert in his venture and wish him all the very best for the future. And once again, apologies for being so late in getting this episode out, but I do hope uh, that it sends one or two of you his way and maybe uh, testing out his wares. As you'll no doubt be aware, due to the pandemic, The Joy of Six was cancelled. In the next episode, I'll be speaking to Peter Berry from Bacchus about future plans for The Joy of Six, amongst other things. And in a first for the podcast, there will be two guests, with Per Broden returning to the show to talk about his Six Mill community project. I'm really looking forward to speaking with both of them. My own hobby has been on somewhat of a hiatus, but I have dusted off the brushes and paints and hope to be back underway with both my Mons and Antietam projects by the time you hear this. The SOM project for the next Joe 6 still features very much in my plans and I'll update you with progress as uh, I go along. One final note, if you're listening to this and think you can stand up to the in-depth questioning and the pressure of speaking to literally tens of people get in touch via email at godsownscale at gmail.com or twitter at godsownscale and we'll have a chat okay that's all from me thank you for listening thank you for bearing with me it really is good to be back in the chair and that just leaves me to say please stay safe and keep talking about six Remember me to all the birds.
Then he wagged his paw and went away to war, shouting out these pathetic words. Goodbye, goodbye. Oh, I'm a dear baby, dear from your eye. Though it's hard to pass, I know, I know. I'll be sicker than death, you know. Don't cry, don't cry. There's a silver lining in the sky. Dribbling black blood from nose and beard. <laughs> 